This, of course, is the time of the year when it is very common in our culture for people to make New Year's resolutions or some type of resolve or some type of turning over a new leaf or whatever the case may be. Uh, It can be a good time of the year to do that type of thing where you sort of turn the calendar uh, away from the past and you'd look forward to the whatever is in front of you and uh, you determine you're going to do things differently or you're going to accomplish these goals. Uh, By God's grace, you hope to achieve this, whatever. I don't know if you do that kind of thing or not, but uh, it is a good time of the year for sort of a, a special type of reflection and a special kind of resolve. So my thoughts have been drawn this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 32. So I want us to consider some thoughts there. We'll only begin there and actually look at a lot of different passages. But begin with me, or turn with me, to begin with, to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. This chapter records a historic time in the life of the people of Israel, because as you look at Deuteronomy 32, the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land. If you know the story, you will remember that this is their second attempt to enter the land. The first go-around was halted by their unbelief and disobedience. Their parents had refused to believe God's word and disobeyed, which resulted in the judgment of God. The nation had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and bury off that entire generation before they could move forward. But now the nation is once again about to enter the land. Before they do, Moses sits them down, as it were, to reiterate to them the law of God. That's basically what the word Deuteronomy means. It is made up of two Greek words, deuteros, means second, and namas means law. So this is the second giving of the law, or a reiteration of the law of God. It's a reminder. Before they enter the new land, Moses wants to reiterate to them the importance of taking heed to the Word of God. Now, unless their memories were totally non-functional, they shouldn't have needed this reminder. They should have been painfully aware of the fact that their parents had been judged by God for, taking, for failing to take God's word seriously. But because this is such an important issue for the child of God, Moses once again <coughs> wants to reiterate to them the importance of taking heed to the word of God. And that is exactly what I want to reinforce in our minds today as we stand on the threshold of 2016. 2015 is over. 2016 is upon us. We don't know what it will hold, but these words of exhortation here in Deuteronomy 32 are timeless. At least the the principles in them are timeless. And notice what Moses says to the people on this historic occasion. Verse 45, over near the end of the chapter, Deuteronomy 32 Verse 45, Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel. And he said to them, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. Now here's the verse. For it is not a 
Translations differ at this point. It is not a futile thing. It is not a trifle thing. It is not an insignificant thing for you because it is your life. What a statement. Basically what Moses was saying to the people is this. Set your heart on the Word of God because it is your life. It's your life. If anyone should have known that, they, they should have because their parents had forfeited 40 years of fruitful living by not setting their hearts on God's Word. But this is something you cannot repeat too often for God's people. God's Word is our life. When you ignore or refuse God's counsel, then you forfeit fullness of life. When you ignore or refuse God's counsel, you pay the price. You reap what you sow. I think of all the Christian men and women I have known through the years who have ignored God's counsel on marrying only a Christian and then have paid for it for years. I've had several tell me they live in a hell on earth for ignoring God's counsel on the subject. In fact, I know several who would speak on the subject any time I would ask them to. They would gladly share their story. I think of the Christians I have watched ignore God's counsel on finances and then pay for it for years. I think of the Christians I have watched ignore God's counsel on marriage and then pay for it by having a lousy marriage. I think of Christians who have refused to submit to biblical input and choose to go somewhere they won't be held accountable for obeying Scripture and then the long-term ramifications of that kind of disobedience. And the ironic thing is that, that people like that usually blame their problems on the church they left. Just as a side note here, I heard something over the holidays I could hardly believe. I, I, I had, it's like I had to have it repeated to me to believe it. I was told about a couple that left a church because too many people shook their hands. Can you believe that one? I think now I've heard of every possible reason for leaving the church. Too many people shook their hands. But that's another subject. The point I want to impress in our minds, beloved, is this. When you ignore or refuse God's counsel, then you forfeit fullness of life. When you ignore or refuse God's counsel, then you pay the price one way or another. And the examples I gave a moment ago are just a sampling. I can multiply examples in lots of different areas of life. And one of the saddest things to me about this reality is the fact that very seldom do people make a connection in their minds. They don't realize that the reason they're experiencing this out here is because of the decisions they made back here. The decisions not to listen to God back here, but they don't make the connection. You see, when God tells us to do something or not do something, He tells us that for our own good. I'm not sure that all of God's people really believe that. Many people view God as a cosmic killjoy who gives us commands in Scripture to make us miserable or at least unhappy. That is such a distorted view of the goodness of God. Understand that when God tells us to do something or not do something, He tells us that for our own good. Let me show you this just in the book of Deuteronomy. Go back to chapter 4. 
Since we're here in the book of Deuteronomy, we'll look at a few of these passages. Deuteronomy chapter 4. As we read through these verses, I want you to notice the emphasis on obeying God for our own good. Look at this. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 40 is the first verse we'll read, and then we'll look at several others. Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 40. You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, watch, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord God is giving you for all time. Moses says, listen, obey God for your good. It's for your own good. Look at chapter 5, verse 28. Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it may be well with them and with their children forever. Don't miss God's emotion in that statement. Oh, he says, oh, that they would that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments. He longs to bless his people and to see his people doing well in life in the right sense of that phrase. We're not talking prosperity gospel here. We're talking about being blessed by God in life. And God feels strongly about this. There's great emotion in those words. Look at chapter 6. The same thought occurs there. Chapter 6, verse 3. Therefore, hear, O Israel... And be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may greatly multiply, as the Lord, your, the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. And then down in verse 18, he says, And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. Over in chapter 12, we have a similar statement. Skip over a few Pages to chapter 12, verse 28. Observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. You see, when God tells us to do something or not do it, He tells us that for our own good. And that's not only true when it comes to what we might call the big things in life. That's true even in the areas of our lives that we might consider to be little things, trivial things. For example, look at Deuteronomy 22. This is a fascinating statement. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 6. If a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way, in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself. Now watch. That it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Why in the world would God put something like that in his word? You might think that is an insignificant issue. But it really illustrates the point That when God tells us something, then we better take heed to it, even if we think it's some minor, insignificant little point. God created us. He loves us, and He has given us His Word for our good. 
Look at Psalm 1. Turn from Deuteronomy, but stay in, in Hebrew Scripture. And turn over to the right to Psalm 1. Notice how the psalmist said it. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now notice the result. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Do you believe that? Do you believe that delighting in and meditating in the Word of God will cause you to be fruitful in life? Now again, we're not talking prosperity gospel. We're not talking no problems, no heartaches. We're just talking about being fruitful in life and even being fruitful through the heartaches. Being fruitful in the trials. Look at Psalm 19. Just a few pages to the right. Psalm 19 verse 10. Speaking of the words of God, the psalmist says in verse 10, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is worn. Now watch. And in keeping them there is great reward. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that in keeping the word of God there is great reward? I do. I believe that keeping the Word of God brings about great reward in life and in eternity. It doesn't mean an absence of problems. It doesn't mean an absence of trials. But there's great reward in keeping the Word of God. James says that. You say, well, all these verses are in the Old Testament. Maybe this is just for the Jews. Well, turn over to James chapter 1, right near the end of the New Testament. James chapter 1, verse 25 James says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and that's just a a picturesque way of referring to the word of God. It's the perfect law of liberty. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Again, I ask you, do you believe that? I do. When you ignore or refuse God's counsel, then you pay the price. You cannot neglect or ignore or disobey God's word without reaping the consequences one way or another. And as I said earlier, the sad part is oftentimes people don't make the connection between the consequences. Let me illustrate this from the book of Genesis. Go all the way back to Hebrew scripture once again, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning. That's the way my translation reads. Not a bad translation. But you might find it interesting to know that this is the Hebrew word wise. It's often translated wise. Here, it sort of has a negative connotation, but the word itself doesn't have a negative connotation. It just means wise. The, the serpent was more wise than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said? Notice where he begins. Questioning the word of God. Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is such an important text of Scripture because it shows us the pattern Satan has used for thousands of years. He still uses it today. He still attempts to use it in your life and in mine. First, he plants doubts about the accuracy and the sufficiency of God's Word. See that? Did God really say that? Here's how he says it today. You you can't really trust the Bible. You need more than the Bible. He plants doubts. He may do this at a moment in time or over a long period of time in your life. Satan isn't in any hurry to destroy you just as long as he can accomplish it eventually. Satan plants doubts. And as after he plants doubts about the accuracy and sufficiency of God's Word, then he will come right out and deny it or contradict it. He asserts that what God has said is wrong. Here he says, you will not surely die. Today this is, the Bible isn't right. It's full of errors. It's full of mistakes. I will never forget I'll never forget this encounter a few years ago when a young man came to me from the south. I don't remember, Arkansas or something. He was up visiting his mom on, around the holidays, around this time of the year. He made an appointment with me. I didn't know him. He walked into my office and he sat down. He said, Pastor Brian, the reason I want to talk to you is my faith has been destroyed by the History Channel and the Discovery Channel. He was dead serious. Been destroyed. You, you know what he's talking about if you ever watched that. All this stuff about, well, we know the Bible says this, but we also know that's not true. We know that, you know, it's got all sorts of mistakes and contradictions. If Satan can get you to believe the Word of God is insufficient, incomplete, or inaccurate, he has you right where he wants you. But let me take this a step further. There are those who say they believe in the accuracy and sufficiency of the Bible. But the way they treat the Bible doesn't really back up their claims. They don't read it. They don't study it. They don't learn it. They don't memorize it. They don't make an effort to apply it or put it into practice. They do the very thing that Moses said not to do in Deuteronomy 32. They treat the Word of God as a trifle thing, as an insignificant thing, and therefore they forfeit fullness of life. God calls us to treat his word differently than that. Let me show you. Go over to Ephesians chapter 6, over into the New Testament letters. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. As Paul here describes the armor that we are to put on, he says in verse 17, Part of the armor is this. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul, here in this section of Ephesians, is describing our weapons of warfare in terms of, or using the picture of, the same types of things that a Roman soldier would put on. 
or a Roman soldier would use in warfare. We know from history there were two common swords used in Paul's day. One was a ramphaya or a broad sword. It was about three to four feet long and it had a huge handle that you could grip, you could hold, and you could swing the sword, you know, like from your horse or if you're standing on the ground. You would swing it sort of like someone would swing a tennis racket. The other kind of sword was called a machaira. It was anywhere from 6 to 18 inches long. It was the kind of sword you would wear, maybe tucked under your belt or under your tunic. It was basically a knife or a miniature sword. This was the sword that was used in hand-to-hand combat. It was a precise weapon that had to be used in a specific way to be effective. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because that is the Greek word Paul uses here in verse 17. Machaira. Not the big broad sword, the, the, the one that has to be used accurately and specifically. So what that tells us is that the Word of God is not just a general sword that we swing around indiscriminately. To be effective, it must be used accurately and specifically. In fact, the term word here in verse 17 where it says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is not the common Greek word logos, or word in general. The term word here in verse 17 is the Greek word hrema, which refers to a specific statement, a specific utterance, a specific word. Again, what that tells us is the sword of the Spirit is not just a general knowledge of the Bible. And the sword of the Spirit is not the Bible as a whole. The sword of the Spirit refers to specific statements of God. You see, just because you have a Bible doesn't mean you have taken the sword of the Spirit. Just because you own a Bible doesn't mean that. You you can have a truckload full of Bibles and still not have the sword of the Spirit. When I was a teenager, I can remember uh, my friends and I would meet for a Bible study in the evening or on the weekend, and I can... I can still recall, see the pictures in my mind when we were all gathering together at a friend's house or whatever, and we'd get out of the car, and one of us would hold up our Bible and say, well, I I brought my sword. I have my sword with me today. Since then, I've learned that's not really true. If you don't know the Word of God in specific details, you haven't taken the sword of the Spirit. Carrying your Bible around doesn't mean you've taken the sword of the Spirit. If you can't use your Bible specifically and accurately, then you haven't taken the sword of the Spirit. It's not a general knowledge of the Bible that defeats Satan. It is specific statements and principles applied to Satan's attacks. It's too late for victory if we have to try to come up with something from the Bible at the moment of need. It's too late to find a verse to block Satan's temptation. If our minds aren't saturated with the words of God so that they permeate our hearts and minds, then we have not taken the sword of the Spirit. That ought to make us aware of the value of studying Scripture, memorizing Scripture. It should also make us aware of the value of imparting the Word of God into the lives of children at home, at Sunday school, Awana, youth ministry, every opportunity we have, it is when we understand and know specific statements from the Bible that we have taken the sword of the Spirit. Let me illustrate this in the life of our Lord from Matthew chapter 4. 
Go back to the left to the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel record, Matthew chapter 4. A familiar story to many of you, beginning in verse 1. Matthew tells us, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. So Satan attacks Jesus with a temptation. Notice how Jesus battles. He doesn't hold up a copy of the Old Testament and say, This is my sword. It will protect me. That's not what he does. He quotes a specific saying of God. A specific scripture. Verse 4, But he answered and said, and by the way, it's interesting, he quotes all of these right out of Deuteronomy, where we were earlier. He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And here's a fascinating thing. The term word that Jesus uses here, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, that is again the Greek word rhema. Remember that term from Ephesians 6? So you could, you could actually translate this verse this way. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the specific statements from the mouth of God. We live by the specific statements of God. Verse 5, Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and it is written in their hands, They shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now this is amazing. Here Satan is using Scripture. But he twists it, and he uses it inaccurately. And beloved, that is why it's so important for us to know Scripture thoroughly and with great detail, with great accuracy. If not, then we really don't have a sword and we're defenseless. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus was successful in spiritual warfare because, now listen, here's how most Christians would complete this statement. Jesus was successful in spiritual warfare because he was God. Wrong. Wrong answer. You failed the test if you put that down. Jesus was successful in spiritual warfare because he knew how to accurately, specifically use the statements of God. It is not true that Jesus was successful in spiritual warfare because he was God. No. He was a man. He lived as a man. And he used the resources that God has given to man. Scripture was his resource. And that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 6.17 when he says, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the specific statements of God. Learn to use the Word of God. Learn to understand it. Use it accurately. Use it specifically. 
And beloved, that's one of the reasons why I'm so committed to expository preaching. Going through every statement of God, verse by verse, line by line, it's imperative for us as soldiers to know and understand the Word of God in detailed accuracy. Then and only then have we taken the sword of the Spirit. H.P. Barker once described three things he saw in a garden among plants and flowers. Listen to this illustration as I quote. He says, First, I saw a butterfly. It was beautiful. It would alight on a flower, sit for a second or two, then flutter to another, sit for a second or two, then flutter on to another, and so on. It would touch as many lovely blossoms as it could, but derived absolutely no benefit from them. Then I watched a little longer out my window, and there came a botanist with a big notebook under his arm and a magnifying glass. He would lean over a certain flower and look for a long time and then write notes in his notebook. After writing notes for hours, he closed his notebook, stuck it under his arm, tucked his magnifying glass in his pocket, and walked away. The third thing I noticed was a little bee. The bee would light on a flower and sink deep down into it, extracting all the pollen that it could carry. It always went in empty and came out full. He continues with the illustration. So it is with people who approach the Bible. There are the spiritual butterflies who just flutter from lovely sermon to lovely sermon, from class to class, from church to church, fluttering here, fluttering there, bringing nothing and gaining nothing but a nice feeling. There are spiritual botanists who take copious notes but they don't have the capacity to draw anything out of the flowers. It's pure academics. It's totally mental. There's no heart. Then there are the spiritual bees who draw out of every precious flower all that is there to make the honey that makes them so blessed to those around them. End quote. So, what are we? What are you? What am I? Are we a butterfly, spiritual butterfly, flitting from sermon to sermon, church to church, class to class, study and study, or maybe a botanist, copious notes, we can parse every word, but it's just all head knowledge? Or are we like the bee, drawing out from the flower something that can be useful in our own lives and to others around us? You see, beloved, taking the sword of the Spirit is not optional. We must thoroughly know and understand the Word of God. Why? Because your knowledge of God, this sounds like a cliche from a preacher, but I'm telling you, your knowledge of God is the key to your life. It's the key to your life. A.W. Tozer said this, quote, The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most crucial fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech, she can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. Perverted notions about God soon rot the religion in which they appear. The long career of Israel demonstrates this clearly enough, and the history of the church confirms it. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when the concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. He closes with this paragraph. The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her. In all her prayers and labors, this should have first place. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them undimmed and undiminished that noble concept of God which we received from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. This will prove of greater value to them than anything that art or science can devise. End quote. He is absolutely right because right living begins by thinking right about what God is like. You see, beloved, what you really believe about God fleshes out in the way you live. Not what you say you believe about God, but what you really believe about God. So many of the problems people have in their lives, and I've seen this for 30 years now, so many of the problems people have in their lives stem from a wrong view of God. Let me be specific. Not exhaustive, but just specific. If you view God as unloving, you will suffer insecurity. If you view God as unforgiving you will suffer overwhelming guilt. If you view God as weak or out of touch with life, you will suffer fear. If you view God as lenient, then you will suffer the consequences of your sin. If you view God as unrighteous, you will suffer from resentment and bitterness at what he allows or what he does. You see, your, your knowledge of God is the key to your life. And that's, again, that's not an exhaustive list, but it's just a sample to illustrate the point that what you believe about God has so many implications, ramifications in your life. The choices you make, the thoughts you think, the fears that you battle, your knowledge of God is the key to your life. Look with me back at Jeremiah chapter 9, back to Hebrew Scripture once again after the Psalms 
Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, then Jeremiah chapter 9. Verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But, verse 24, let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment or justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Smart people can tend to glory in their intelligence. Strong people have a tendency to glory in their strength. Rich people have the tendency to glory in their money. But here the prophet says, or God says through the prophet, true fulfillment, true satisfaction, true contentment in life comes only from knowing God. The better you know God... And the more accurately you know God, the deeper you know God, the better off you will be because right living begins by thinking right about what God is like. And what an insult it is for God if we think we already know Him well enough. That we're good. You know, we're fine. As God's people, we are called to a lifelong preoccupation with God. A lifelong preoccupation with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to close by looking at Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 sums this up for us in a profound way. Paul says in verse 10, This is my passion, that I may know Him. Now here's the fascinating thing about this verse. Back in verses 8 and 9, Paul just said he gave up all of his own self-righteousness to come to know Christ. So it would not be an illegitimate question to say, hold it, Paul. What are you talking about here in verse 10? That I may know him. You just said you came to know him. That you trashed all your own religious credentials so that you could come to know Christ. Now you know him. So what are you talking about? Well, obviously, in verses 8 and 9, he's talking about salvation knowledge. That is, coming to know Christ, as as we often say, as your Lord and Savior. But in verse 10, he's talking about a deepening relationship. He's talking about what we often call progressive sanctification. He's talking about knowing the Lord Jesus deeper, more intimately. He says, this is my passion, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means... I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul said, my longing, my passion is to know him. Let's together make this our New Year's goal for 2016. We're going to study the Word in 2016. 
Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday school classes, community groups, discipleship relationships. We're going to study the Word. And as we do, I hope you don't get tired of it or view it as merely an academic exercise. I hope we will view it as an opportunity to get to know Jesus Christ more intimately. As we say with Paul, that I may know him. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, the strong man in his strength, the rich man in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, says the Lord. Let's bow together in closing this morning. As you bow your head in closing, contemplating what you have seen and heard from the Word of God this morning. Again, this doesn't have to be a New Year's resolution officially, but maybe just a reaffirmation in your own heart before the Lord that here in 2016, we're going to do what Paul said in Ephesians 6, take the sword of the Spirit. Take the sword of the Spirit. Learn the Word of God, not as an academic exercise, but learn the Word of God that you can know God more accurately, more intimately, that you can know Christ. Make this a goal for this new year. Make this a a pledge, if you will, a resolve that you're going to learn the Word of God, not as an end in itself, but to know God and to be like a spiritual bee that draws from the flower what is rich and what is fruitful, what is beneficial. Remember what Moses said to the people of Israel there on the threshold of the promised land. Set your hearts on all these words because it's not a trifle thing. It's not a trivial thing. This is your life. Beloved, this is your life. This is my life. This is our lives. To know God, to know Him deeply, intimately, to know His truth, specifically, accurately. This is your life. So, Father, as we are now here just a few days into this new year, thank you for the challenge from your word, the reminder, the exhortation. And may this new year ahead of us be one in which, by your grace, by your strength, we take the sword of the Spirit, where we do, as Moses said, to set our hearts on all these words, because it's not a trivial thing. It's not an insignificant thing. It's a matter of life. So encourage us by the example of the Lord Jesus in the way he was successful in spiritual warfare by using the word and using it accurately. And may his example be that which prompts us and prods us and motivates us. We long to to really be able to say, as Paul did here in Philippians 3, this is my passion. This is my drive that I may know him. Give us that same hungering and thirsting after righteousness. That same hungering and thirsting after Jesus Christ. And may this year be one that we live to his glory until he chooses either to come and take us or take us home or we roll into the next year, whatever the case may be, may we live for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.